Action Park Media. everyone and welcome to Pretty Depressed, the podcast season four. Can you believe it? <laughs> yep, still depressed, still working on many things, but that's all right. We're all a work in progress. So excited to have you back with us for this season. And I thought the very best way to kick it off would be to check in with none other than my own psychologist, the phenomenal Gwendolyn Smith. She has a new book out. It's called The Book of Feeling Blue. I 10 out of 10 recommend it. All of her books, actually. We use them as a resource often in my therapy sessions. So um, without further ado, this is Pretty Depressed with Gwendolyn Smith. Uh, how should I introduce you? As my amazing therapist, Gwendolyn Smith, the author of The Book of Feeling Blue, The Book of Overthinking, The Book of Angst. What else is there? There's one more. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Book of Knowing. Book of Knowing. Thank you. I knew I was like, got to catch them all. Um, we're going to talk about The Book of Feeling Blue. I guess the best place to start is to let everyone know that if they don't know how we met, when I was really not in a good place, Gwendolyn was pivotal and um, diagnosing me with depression and anxiety, helping me along the way. And yeah, I guess as I have kind of fallen into, cat in the mix now, uh, fallen into almost a second wave of really needing some help. Gwendolyn's been right there for me. Can't thank her enough. Um, it's been my pleasure, Kimberly. Thank you. I appreciate that. My pleasure too, actually. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the book of Feeling Blue, which is Understanding and Managing Depression. and. I, <laughs> should I start with this? I will. In this book, there is like a test, almost like a quiz. And I did it recently and I didn't do too well on it again. And so I guess we just start right there. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, explain to people what this test really is and how you use it? Because they might be like a test. What does that mean? What are you testing me for? Okay. Well, Unlike the quiz that you would see in a women's magazine, this is a an internationally used, respected, researched um, depression inventory. And um, the guy who designed this, Aaron Beck, is actually the founder and father of cognitive behavioral therapy, which many of you will be familiar with. Mm -hmm. So he designed this depression questionnaire to work alongside his treatment method. So mm -hmm. what he what in this depression scale, what you're looking for is you're looking for, okay, is there just some stuff going on in the environment? And if you had a bit of talk therapy, made a few behavioral changes, your mood would lift. Um, is it going up the scale a little bit further into sort of mild, moderate? Is this, um, is it burnout, for instance? Because burnout mimics mild depression. So, it's done on a continuum so that the higher the score, what you then see in the results is more and more illness symptoms. So in other words, more to do with biology. So for instance, 
sleep disturbance, either not sleeping enough or sleeping too much. Significant changes in appetite is another one. Um, lack of energy, lack of interest in things that you used to really enjoy. The clinical name for that is anhedonia. And that's because if your battery isn't sufficiently charged with all the right little neurotransmitters and things bumping around, um, no matter how much you want to enjoy something, you are unable to enjoy it. So that's a big difference. It's got nothing to do with, oh, are you lazy? Are you um, just lacking motivation? It's actually an inability to enjoy. The other things that, that uh, in this more, as it goes up the scale, more severe is that you really start to notice the brain itself struggling. So concentration will be impaired. Attention to detail, focus, attention, they drop off. Decision-making drops off. So you get three quite noticeable changes in cognitive function. So... So that's what Beck was doing. He was going, okay, is this a relationship breakup? Mm. Is it grief? Is it problems at work? Is it um, something in the environment, something in relationships, problems with within the family? Or has this now rolled over and become something more serious that would then need medical attention. So even though it's called the Book of Feeling Blue, what that particular questionnaire enables you to do, Kimberly, is to differentiate where you are in terms of feeling a bit blue, feeling low, dissatisfied, or has it morphed into depression? That's what that scale is about. I found it really helpful. A little shocking that I was answering it honestly and scored concerningly high, but I also know we're working outside of this because I've come to you because I've gone, get the feeling, just not coping with stuff. And um, I wanted to ask you a question around pride because I felt... I feel part of my depression is negative self-talk and catastrophizing thought. A little bummed that she with a podcast all about this and learning about this and feeling like I have all the tools um, kind of is falling, currently falling off the wagon a little bit. And I just wondered if you could speak to that because I'm sure some people have gone through that as well where they think they've got it all together and that's behind them. And then there's almost a shame attached to feeling like we're back here again learning the same lesson? Okay, well, I think the first thing that comes to mind there is um, stigma as a phenomenon. Now, we, you know, a a lot's been done, say, in the last decade, you know, public health education campaigns and all this sort of stuff saying, look, it's it's okay. You know, it's not a statement about you. Your brain is an organ. 
organs get strained and fatigued and so therefore they need looking after. But with the brain, of course, we're very intolerant and expect the brain to function at full capacity no matter what's going on in our world. But the other stigma that people don't talk about so much is the internal stigma. So it's got nothing to do with, I mean, if you had a best friend and they were depressed and you would say, oh, you know, look, you know, you can do this, you can do that, you know, don't be ashamed of it, it's not an issue. But when it comes to the self, particularly Mm. if it's another episode, it's like I've failed. I've failed. Here I am again. I'm a failure. I've had this therapy. Now look. I'm right back to the get-go. You're not right back to the Mm get-go. Science tells us that with the mood disorders, the genetic contribution with anxiety is between 25 and 40%. So it's highly significant. Mm. Depression sits at about 15 to 20%. But the thing with depression is if you have had one episode, you're I don't know, let's say 50 to 60% more likely to have another one. Mm. And so I think it's important when listening to these sorts of podcasts and conversations about these conditions is to never forget that there's genetics sitting in there as a powerful influence in these conditions. That is really helpful. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it does feel like a pride thing for me as well. And it's all related. I, I love in the book how you talk about creatives uh, really high on the scale of having depression and anxiety. And a lot of my negative self-talk comes from what I do as a career, which I remember you telling me could you do something else? And I told you not at all. So then we went into, okay, so how do we manage that? But you're a, you're a creative as well. And what I love about this book is you share a little right out of the gate, share some of your journey, which I didn't know entirely all about. And it was really, obviously, I'm very selfish in our sessions and I just focus on me. Um, well, that's what you're paying for, Kimberly. you know. <laughs> Never let your therapists talk about themselves. If they do that, change. Um, I just, I, and as much as you feel comfortable, I know people will want to read it in the book, but um I wondered if talking about your journey, is it strange to be a therapist who speaks openly about their own mental health journey? Because I think it's great. I don't imagine a bunch of therapists open up and go, hey, look, I have this and this and this, and I went through that. I don't know. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, what is yeah, your no, I've spoken to colleagues and um, it is unusual. I mean, Um, I read a book called An Unquiet Mind. I reviewed that book years ago, and that was about a a professor of psychology, Kay Redfield Jamison. Mm -hmm. And um, she talked about her bipolar. Um, you, You do see discussions about things like bipolar, for instance, do go through phases of becoming um 
very fashionable in the celebrity culture, mm. particularly bipolar. Mm. And they all seem to end up at Bruce Willis's place. Yeah. <laughs> the melting pot, I guess. <laughs> Bunches of them, you know. Um, and you know that that some of them have been incredibly ill. Um, but then sometimes I sort of wonder, well, okay, like Britney Spears, for instance, childhood actress, highly charged life, busy, manic, um, gets into substances, things start to crash. Mm. That doesn't mean because you've been up and then you've crashed that you're necessarily that diagnosis, but it seems to be very popular in America. Mm. Very popular celebrity diagnosis. That overstimulation thing is interesting. I really struggle in seasons of quiet because so much of my life is really stimulating. And that's what I use busy lady syndrome as a cover to avoid being still. Uh, I was wondering, and, and a lot of people maybe aren't in a position right now where they um, feel like they can financially afford going to regular therapy. I was wondering if you could break down what we do, cognitive behavioral therapy, just really simply so that if someone is listening to this, they can do at least kind of that basic worksheet that you and I do of making the facts. Because I know there's a huge amount of my audience who are type A, who are slightly neurotic, who do catastrophize thought and who do people please. So I wondered if we could use an example, a hypothetical one or one from my life of just kind of how we break down that behaviour so that people can feel empowered when they look at this. Well, in terms of being able to do some of the stuff that we do, mm -hmm. um, you usually find that overthinking slash worrisome thinking is a common factor across all the varying diagnostic classifications. So, for instance, if you've got an anorexic, they're worried about putting on weight. If you've got someone with a germ phobia, they're worried about being contaminated. Um, if you've got someone with OCD, they're worried about symmetry or germs or numbers or counting. So, therefore, worrying goes across, and of course, with the fear of judgment, social anxiety, which is the book of angst, people worry about being judged. So it's a fear of judgment. With depression, you usually find that when you've got the person stabilised, you know, so you've, you've got them on some meds or whatever you're doing, they're feeling better. Nine times out of ten, unless it's been a grief response or a post-traumatic stress response, nine times out of ten you're going to find that in the build-up to the depressive episode, they've been anxious. And anxious, 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 month after year after month, system shuts down, then you get depression. So... What we now know is that anxiety is a major neurological pathway into depressed mood. Mm. So if anyone listening thinks, well, hey, you know, 
I wouldn't mind find out, finding out what Kimberly's talking about. Mm. Book of Overthinking is the better one. Because that it's so gives, good because we use it every session. <laughs> Go yeah. to page this. Go to page it. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah, I do. Well, well, then in in the book of feeling blue, what I mean, you open with first of all the difference between feeling blue and depressed, which I think is really important. What would be a really a couple of flags in a loved one to step in? Because I notice people who rate really highly on that scale that we were talking about, if they are not wanting to get help or needing to get help, you said a lot of the times people end up coming to therapy, usually from some kind of intervention or um, family members. What are some of those early stages of it transitioning between being blue and depressed that friends and family can look out for? You mentioned one, which was a change in appetite. Are there any other kind of key things that people should be on the lookout for that that you would think as a therapist, like, oh, we're moving into that territory. The thing I, I love about this book is that it's full of knowledge and it's full of information. It doesn't have the self-help component that the other ones have, but it's all-encompassing. And so an answer to that question, Kimberly, what I would say is that, so what I've got in there is, um, and some people don't believe this is possible, but believe me, it is. How would you notice if a child was depressed? How would you notice what would you look for in a teenager? Mm. What would you, and then I go into gender and sexuality because the rainbow community has a five times higher suicide rate than the mainstream community. So I've got that in there. And then the elderly. You see, mm. often it becomes very difficult to notice whether granny or granddad have, be, have become depressed because um, we sort of move around with a bit of a expectation that well, you're old, you know, of course you'd be depressed. All your mates are dying. Your husband's dead. This person's dead. You know, you put your back out. You're in a wheelchair. I mean, of course you'd be depressed. But it's it's not as simple as that. So depression in the elderly is either over-diagnosed, like we think, oh, your granny's depressed because her husband's just died. Mm -hmm. um, or it's so it's either overdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. That's the thing with, with the elderly. And mm. and I think that it's really important to have a family GP that you can trust. Mm. Um so that's how I've divided this book up so that you can go in there because. What a child will do if they're depressed is quite different than what a transgender teenager is going to be doing mm. or what a 70-year-old granny is going to be doing. And then, of course, the other important chapter um, is the postnatal depression. And what a lot of people don't realise is that dads, well, I call them parent number two, 
also get depressed because these days nothing is as binary, you know, as it used to be. So um, parents can be two women, two men, traditional, male, female, you know, trans, not trans, you know. So I made a point in that chapter of sort of referring to the other parent Mm. as parent number two. And the literature is clear that dads, um, or parent number two, but that dads will get postnatal depression because they've got the same sleep disturbance. They've got the same genetic vulnerability to having an infant. They might have additional strain with mortgages and childcare and doctor's bills and, you know, all the rest of it. So I think that's what your listeners will will really like about this book, Kimberly, is that um, it's it's like the Wikipedia of depression. It's got everything that there is to know about it in this book. I, you sent me a really great article about gut health and the connection to the brain. Would you be able to cliff notes that for the audience so I don't butcher it? (laughs) And I'm doing that because I'm looking at this diagram in the book about um, biology, which was something that I didn't really consider was a my body telling me that I am not great because I've got an upset tummy all the time or, you know, I'm getting night sweats or the biology actually of it is that I'm not okay. Um, And, yeah, I just wondered if you could explain because I found that article fascinating. Yeah, I I did when I came across it. I mean, I had a, a bunch of young male clients, sort of late teens, been all over the place, having, you know, oscopies and poscopies and whatever else they're called, um, looking for ulcers, looking for this, looking for that, tens of thousands of dollars. And so usually a psychologist is the last port of call because what that's saying is we are now admitting that this is all in my head. Well, it's not that simple because... We are one organism, Mm. one sperm, one egg, one. And then all the little little cells go out and think, oh, I'd quite like to be an eyelash. Oh, I'm not. I'm going to be a toenail. Toenail? Oh, no, I'm going to to be the bottom lip. You know, so, so off they go. And they create this organism, which is us. There is no separation. Mm. So with all the new antidepressants, which are selective serotonin SSRIs, reuptake inhibitors, I was just bouncing along thinking, oh, yeah, of course, all the serotonin must be in the head. Then I came across this article, which is um, in the New York Times, written by a journalist called Harriet Brown, um, and she was interviewing this guy who did this sort of thing, and he said, well, no, actually the research now is we've got two nervous systems, not just the one, and 95%, not five, 
95% of the serotonin receptors actually live in the gut, not the organ on the top of our shoulders. Mm. Now, the evolutional theory is that before we had the computer, the temporal lobe, our only decisions were really to do with kill, hunt, eat. So, therefore, there wasn't really a need for anything else. So, therefore, all the intuitive response, what we now call the fight, flight, freeze response, which has been there since the get-go, was about freeze if there's a snake coming towards you. Kill if it's an antelope that you're going to eat. Run. You know, so that sort of stuff. So the decisions in terms of evolution were made in the gut. And then with our evolution, things changed. And I, just like everybody else, thought all the serotonin was in the brain and it's not. It's in the gut. So that's why when people get upset, they'll often go off their food because... um, the 5-HT hormone shuts down, it knocks the gut. Mm. So if you eat, it tastes like cardboard, you can't digest anything. It's also um, the very early research made the connection between stress and ulcers, mm. irritable bowel. So what we now know is that we've got a lot of stress-induced, stress-related conditions that um, centre around that gastrointestinal area. Is that that all right, Kimberly? You did a much better job than I did. (laughs) Uh, Do you recommend to clients like probiotics and things like that or do you encourage that kind of stuff or just like you just encourage people to take care of their own gut health to help their mental health? We haven't got to that level yet, so. Mm. Um, What's normally your advice? Because I know I know my anxiety and my depression is very biological. My anxiety or my panic attacks are very physical. My depression shows very physically in my body with appetite, sweat, sleep disruption. Like I've yeah. got my stress, yeah. Because of my thoughts, um, yeah. When it terms to in terms of taking care of your gut, what are, do you have any advice around that? Usually, by the time people come to see me, it's already fucked. <laughs> um, they've, they've been on a path. They've been to nutritionists. They've been to naturopaths. They've been to the GP. If they've got um, extreme gut problems, they may have been to a specialist. Mm. Um, so it's not the norm for people to go, hmm, I've got constant diarrhea or I've got constant stomach cramp. I know I'll go and talk to a mental health professional. That's not the connection. So for people good to so- know I'm in good to know I'm in the minority of something here. That's great. That's good. <laughs> so help me, Gwendolyn. <laughs> yeah. People say this is happening and this is happening and this is happening in terms of their gut health. I say, well, you know, what are you doing? 
Mm. Oh, well, I'm taking this and I'm on this diet and I found out that I was gluten intolerant and so then I'm over here and I'm over there. And I said, okay, well, you know, as long as, you know, that's all being supervised and taken care of. Um, but with a successful um, psychological intervention, um, a lot of the time those medications are just no longer needed. Mm. And that, that's that's very rewarding, you know, when someone's, come to see you with a handbag or a briefcase full of stuff they're taking and um, buy, buy things like breathing and relaxing and the cognitive therapy, um, it resolves. Hmm. Um, because I'm almost up with my time with you, I want to loop back to the book and ask you how long it took you to write because you have four amazing books that... If if anyone is in a situation that they are not financially able at the moment or in a position to get therapy, especially this book, you're right, the book of Feeling Blue, a great resource for entry-level understanding as well from a very global scale in getting into the minutiae of really specifics. I'm so curious how long it took you to write because it's so brilliant. There's amazing pictures in here. Um. They've all been a bit different, Kimberly. I mean, knowing only took a week. Oh, okay. Um, angst was in lockdown, so I was pretty much working from home a lot of the time. So that might have taken oh, a couple of months. Um, Book of Blue, it was such an easy write for me, but, of course, I was working full time hmm. at the same time. So I don't know. Let's just say a season. I usually start writing when it starts raining, although it's raining all the time. I know. Well, there you go. So there must be another book on the way then. Um, (laughs) um, It really is beautiful and all your books are so well done. And interestingly enough, as I've developed and grown, especially the book of overthinking, coming back to it and being in a different chapter and reading things differently, which you said would happen to me as you mature and you see things, um, what are you most proud about in your journey? Because this must be a pretty pinch yourself moment when you know that you're helping so many people beyond your capacity of just one-on-one therapy with people. Yeah, it is. It is really cool, and and I think why they've been so successful is that um, they're almost like mental health comics. So because the illustrations by my young illustrators Gabby and Georgia they just really we just really get each other so if I say um highlight this joke you know because there's always a lot of jokes in them and so what happens for people is they get the book um oh wow that was a really easy read Wendell and I read it in an afternoon mm-hmm. and I think well yeah but when we start working together using the book mm-hmm. as like a handbook, they realise then that there's so much information that they didn't get it because they were giggling at the cartoons or the jokes <laughs> or might have found a paragraph really interesting and then moved on. Mm-hmm. But I love it the way, I mean, 
the book of knowing, I've I've had 12-year-olds read that book. And I've actually had 12-year-olds read the book of overthinking. Mm. So even if you're not a reader and you're listening, um, don't be put off by mm, a book. Oh, no. I mean, they are an audio book format now. Um, but I sort of like the hard copy because you don't get to see all the great pictures in an audio book. Yeah, and that's so good. <laughs> You're right, and it pulls out the most, usually the most kind of important thing you need to remember, and I really appreciate you also always draw diagrams for me, and I find that really helpful. Uh, there's one in overthinking about my thoughts being like a roller coaster and I need to remember to get off the ride sooner. And I can, whenever I'm feeling like I'm spiraling, the first image that comes to mind is your, the image of the roller coaster. I'm like, get yeah, off yeah. it, get off it. Um, <laughs> it's so good. Uh, lastly, to wrap up, one of the tokens that I've noticed um, that you have given me is about policing my thoughts. Uh, in my journey with depression, you described to me very early on in our first session that I have been allowing my thoughts like a lollipop at a traffic stand to go, stop, go, stop, go. And I've allowed so many thoughts that aren't true and real through into my brain and through into my body. And I have to work at policing them a little bit and just stopping and going, is this a real thought? Does my best friend really hate me? Or is she just maybe busy and not texting back? Like I tend to do that. And my other thing that you've done is I speak a lot in shoulds and assumptions. And I thought to wrap up, it might be nice because it's a token we can all put in our back pocket. Why it's so important to eliminate, it's in the book of Feeling Blue, these words around, I should be there by now. I should feel better. Um, why should is such a dangerous, or maybe that's the wrong verbiage, uh, not great word. To no, no, I'm happy to call should dangerous. Yeah. I think it's it's an incredibly um, destructive word, mm-hmm. um, and and um, overthinking and an angst. I mean, when I first started talking about the shoulds, because other theorists have, I sort of had them depicted illustration wise as three little female singers going should, must, have to, should, must, have to, you know, like singing in the back. Then by the time I got to write the book of overthinking, I thought, hang on a second, these words, and of course should, must, have to are all the same word, just Mm. served up differently. Um, Then I thought, well, hang on a second, these are not harmless little female backing vocalists. They are actually dominant, destructive thoughts responsible for, and I'll find it, the following emotions. So this is an overthinking, ladies and gentlemen. So if you think I should have, and you didn't, of course, you're going to feel guilty and regretful. Mm -hmm. Then I shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And this happens a lot with addictions or procrastination, that sort of thing. I shouldn't have eaten that. I shouldn't have drunk this. I shouldn't have gone to the casino. Then you feel guilt and incredible self-criticism. Then when the shoulds get rolled out onto other people, well, they they should have done this and they should have done that. Mm. 
The emotions that start to bubble are anger, frustration, and disappointment. God, I know. They shouldn't have takes you into resentment, anger, and frustration. I have to, I have to do this, I have to do that. Pressure, tension, obligation. I must, more pressure, more tension. And I go on to say, now there's a bucket full of fun. Not look at all those hideous emotions, biological tension and distress. Yeah. It's amazing that we still believe in this word and give it such a predominant place in our thinking. And I would say I a big part of the first wave of that I was with you in the second wave, that should is loud and clear. And so I've got to work really hard. Hopefully before the next time I see you next week, I'll work on eliminating that because it creeps in. It's interesting. It's, it's. Uh... Oh, yeah. I mean, for you guys that are listening, you know, just before Kimberly and I wind up, you know, it's like, well, what's she talking about? Don't think should, don't say should. What you do with that word is you replace it with words based in choice. So instead of I should do this and I should do that and I have to do this and I should have done that and I shouldn't have done that, just think to yourself, okay, well, right, I could do that today, but I could also do it tomorrow. Give yourself a break. That's a lovely way to end. The question I ask everyone on my podcast is, what does your brain look like? And you can take that, whichever you would like to do it. I'll share with you what my one had been recently. My brain feels like a woman with curly hair, kind of looking at camera with uh, with glasses on, surrounded by uh, filing cabinets, and you've asked her to find something, and she knows it's in there somewhere, but she's not quite sure where, and that's kind of how I feel quite often. <laughs> Is that sort of picture? I'm curious, Gwendolyn, what your brain might look like. <laughs> I have got absolutely no idea. Probably something very similar to a diagram that you'd see in a autopsy lab. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. That meant quite structured. Yeah, just your basic brain. Oh. You know, basic okay. anatomical drawing. Okay, I'll give you that, but I. <laughs> Thank you, Kimberly. <laughs> All right. That was a lazy way to get out. It stop. was. It was. That's fine. I love you very much. Thank you, Gwendolyn, for your time. And if anyone wants to grab any of the books, you can get them everywhere, actually. Uh, but the Book of Feeling Blue, it's beautiful. It's amazing. I thoroughly recommend it for yourself. Take the test. See where you're at. And, and definitely, if you are wanting to help others or understand a little bit better, which I think is the best thing that you can echo this if you agree, Gwendolyn, but... If someone in your life is struggling, the people around that person should also read this book because I think if yeah. in here, if you have not been through it, it must be so hard to even understand. <laughs> you can't. So Amazon, Amazon is great. They always carry them. They're never out of stock. So pop in into their bookshop. Thank you, Gwendolyn. Okay. Bye, Kimberly. Bye.